Greetings, friends. This is Why Whiskey, a history podcast with a whiskey problem. Or is it a whiskey podcast with a history problem? We'll let you decide. Head on up to the bar, grab a stool and a drink, and let's talk. friends and welcome back for some more time at the bar of questionable life choices i am your host ian and this is why whiskey in the early 20th century the industrial revolution in america's big cities brought forth a boom in commerce and technology however that boom came at a price the cost was often abysmal working conditions disgustingly low pay and very little support for the workers who toiled in unsafe and unsanitary conditions These conditions struck hard, particularly for immigrant women workers. The subject of tonight's episode recognized this exploitation and took action. Clara Limlick was a Jewish immigrant from Russia who would rise to be a powerful advocate for better pay and working conditions for women workers in New York City and eventually lead the largest strike by women ever. Joining me to talk about Clara is a historian and a writer who has a passion for the quote, bite-sized pieces, end quote, of big history. She is the host of the Civics and Coffee podcast and a fellow history nerd. Ladies and gents, please join me in welcoming Alicia. Alicia, welcome to the Bar of Questionable Life Choices and Why Whiskey. (laughs) I'm so glad to have you today. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about uh, a badass woman from history. Absolutely, absolutely. I love your show, and I love your show because it is uh, first off, it is produced beautifully. Uh, it oh, is thank you. just your the the sound, the whole like warmth of the the entire thing is wonderful. And you pack in. I don't know how you do it. I'm just way <laughs> way too verbose to do what you do. You pack in so much information in such a a great snippet of time. Uh, I'm I'm incredibly jealous, but also <laughs> super happy to uh, to be hanging out with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's um, it's always interesting trying to figure out exactly what pieces I really want to hit in an episode, and then what what pieces I feel like, well, maybe a lot of people know about that, and I don't need to necessarily include that. But uh, yeah, it's always my goal to to make an episode in the for people to enjoy in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. So usually 15, 20 minutes, and hopefully that uh, that gets delivered every week. It's awesome. It is. It is awesome. I had the. I listened to your latest uh, on the way. I was dropping the daughter off at some skating thing that some party thing she was going to, and we listened uh, to your your most recent episode on the way, which was uh, about slavery and the abolishment of uh, well, the the abolishment of importation of slaves. Not the yes. slavery didn't end at that time, and it was great. Uh, and again, super uh, <laughs> impressed with how you you just condense and you're able to pick out that information. So very well done. So here on Why Whiskey, we, uh, we talk a lot more. We use a lot more words. Uh, we have no time limit, and we drink. So <laughs> if you're ready, my friend, shall we begin? 
Yes. All right. Let's do it. So we're going to start with uh, a lovely scotch, uh, one of the older scotches that's been around, and this is Dalmore 12. So the 12-year-old version of this, it's a single malt. Uh, the story behind Dalmore is pretty freaking cool because uh, allegedly, now with whiskey, you got to kind of give it some some liberty. There we go. You need to give it just a little bit of so the stories in whiskey, you got to give them some liberty. But apparently King Alexander III was saved from a charging stag by uh, Colin of Kintail. Uh, and then the stag became like the family emblem. And then later on, the clan Mackenzie started the distillery, I think, oh, early 19th century. Anyway, okay. and so that's where like the stag on the bottles come from. Right, and there's the the history behind the stag and the brand and all this other stuff. But uh, they've been they've been making whiskey for uh, a couple hundred years now, and they do a pretty damn good job of it. So this is their uh, their beginner, their introductory whiskey. So it's forty percent okay. ABV. Uh, it is twelve years old now. What they spend uh, it spends its first nine years in former bourbon casks, and then it gets put into these uh, privately sourced sherry like oloroso barrels that they get from a very specific place in france and it finishes the rest of its time there which kind of adds into a whole bunch of new flavors uh, on top of what it would have normally gotten with the single malt and the 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 bourbon casks so uh if you're if you're ready we shall partake yeah i'm as ready as i'll ever be <laughs> all, right. all right here we go cheers friend cheers Ooh, that's strong <laughs> So I started with bourbon, right? That was my first thing. And bourbons are big and bold and their flavor profiles are like just raw, you know, very American, right? You know, yeah. mildly obnoxious, but kind of entertaining, right? Um, <laughs> so uh, so when I get with, with scotches, it's just this weird, they're so delicate and they're so, uh, I don't, I, flimsy is not the right word, but um, I think of like a, a piece of lace or something, you know what I mean? Like mm. they're intricate and pretty and they're- Delicate. Uh, yeah, they're just, they're wonderful whiskeys. My uh, my husband, I think, will be very proud of me for for partaking in this. <laughs> He's a whiskey drinker, so it's not as yeah, it's not as throat punchy as um, I was expecting. Typically, when I have a, a try a whiskey or a bourbon or a scotch, because I don't, I, I'm sure I know there's differences between the three, but for me, they're all <laughs> they all blend. It's all brown liquor, okay? Um, so typically, they they uh, <clears throat> hit me right in the back of the throat, but this one actually. It, while it's strong, it definitely has a strong flavor profile for me. It it actually wasn't that bad. It didn't it didn't um, bring on the pain of death that I was yeah. expecting. <laughs> there there was no coughing, so that I mean, right off the bat, exactly. I was like, all right, we're we're good for now. <laughs> yep, yep, we're good for now. It's when I send out the samples and the the first sip starts, people start coughing. I'm like, oh, I fucked up. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I made the wrong choice. So, excellent, excellent. So, what do you normally drink? What's your well, so I drink uh, champagne. That is typically my um, my beverage of choice. Um, otherwise, I like uh, you know like nice little fruity cocktails, like lemon drops or um, a margarita. Margarita is probably the strongest thing that I do because of that you know that tequila. But anything Oof. like even mezcal, it's way too smoky for me. So I've tried it and I can't I can't get down. So any any type of brown liquor, I try to stay away from because. <laughs> Usually ends up in a bad situation. So hopefully I'm not stuttering by the end of this. <laughs> oh, it'll just add to the adventure. It'll be great. Uh, okay, so we are here uh, to talk about 
Clara Lemlich. Um, and we're going to start by talking just about kind of who she was, where she came from. So uh, in kind of reading up on uh, on some of your stuff, you you definitely have a, a command of, of knowledge here. So uh, I'm going to give the floor to you and want you to tell us what you know of, of Clara. Introduce us to her. Sure. Um, so unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of um, information that's like readily available about her. Um, but she was, like you mentioned, a Jewish girl born in the Ukraine in a town of Gordok. And she couldn't actually go to school because she was Jewish. So in, in Russia, there were that massive anti-Jewish uh, sentiment was brewing. And her parents, kind of in an act of defiance, were forbidding her from even learning the Russian language. So she couldn't read any Russian books. She couldn't learn the Russian language. And of course, kind of being the, um, the force of nature that she is and, and very stubborn, she ignored them. And she started to collect Russian books, um, very specifically things about communism, like the Communist Manifesto, Marx, and all of that. So she secretly uh, studied Russian classics. She hid her, her books apparently under a, a meat pan. And she learned her trade, her sewing trade, by um, she, she learned the sewing trade in order to pay for these books because obviously she couldn't ask mom and dad for money. <clears throat> she came from a poor family anyways, and obviously they were not going to be about her learning Russian or reading Russian, so she had to keep it a secret. Um, eventually, her book bundle was discovered, <clears throat> and her father, in a fit of rage, decided to burn them all. So not to be uh, dissuaded, she was like, mm, that's okay, I'm making my own money. And she continued <laughs> to do her sewing work and just rebuilt up her collection. And then this time she decided to um, share them, uh, hide them in the attic. She figured probably a safer bit than a meat pan. So that's pretty much what's known mainly about her childhood. And then we know that she immigrated with her parents in 1903, again, as a result of kind of that that anti-Jewish violence that was starting to be really present in Russia. And upon her arrival, she immediately went to work at a textile factory. I, I think it was within a couple of weeks within uh, arriving in New York. And of course, New York at the time was a huge garment manufacturer. The shirt waists were super popular. There was like 600 factories employing yeah. thousands of workers mainly immigrant women, right? So yep. they knew that they could pay them meager, meager wages because the attitude at the time was that women were only going to work temporarily until they got married. And while a lot of Jewish women did only work until they got married, that didn't negate the fact, obviously, that they worked hard and they deserved you know, a, a decent wage. So often working 11-hour days for like $3 a week, um, so she worked seven days a week. She had no, no days off, 60 to 80 hours a week and all of that for three bucks. So she knew immediately, obviously, <clears throat> that the conditions were terrible and being kind of the boisterous power of force that she was, you know, she immediately started kind of calling it out and saying, hey, 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 we need better working conditions. We need, you know, we need to be respected. We're workers too. Um, and she joined actually a fledgling union at the time. It's the International Ladies Garment 
Workers Union or the ILGWU in uh, 1906. <laughs> it's a lot of letters. <laughs> yes, a lot of letters. Yeah, it's basically alphabet soup of, yeah. of unions. Um, yeah, and so from there, she was really committed to trying to get organized and trying to, you know, do that collective bargaining. And originally, the male union representatives kind of poo-pooed women, right? Like they're, right. they're not going to really go on strike. They're, they're weak. They're meager. They're only here temporarily. They're not effective strikers. Um, and so they pretty much kind of just tried to ignore her. And of course, the one thing about Clara is she's going to do what she's going to do and nobody's going to tell her differently, which I kind of respect and admire about her. Absolutely. She is feisty. Um, oh yeah, and her I, I, going through the the research I was doing beforehand, and and seeing just some of her pictures, and reading some of her the quotes that she's had, and the statements that she gave. She wrote an article for Good Housekeeping in 1912. Mm -hmm. um, I can almost hear her voice, and you just hear that you know that that snappy uh, young woman, right? That's just like coming at you uh, mm -hmm. uh, with, and I, I love that. That was uh, that was awesome, and it fit her character. And we're gonna talk uh, in depth, kind of. Uh, about the shirtwaist uh, factory and then her move into activism and and all that stuff here in a little bit. So uh, I, I don't want to get like way deep into that because we're we're going to dive For into sure. that here in just a sec. Um, she did get married. She actually got married twice. Yes, she um, did. The first time was to uh, Shavelson, Joel? Shavelson? Yes, I believe. Yes. Uh, in 1913. So this is not not too long. I mean, it's, it's a little ways after uh, she had gotten here. Uh, and was was mixed up in in all of her her activism. She had three children mm -hmm. with uh, with him, and that was uh, her son uh, Irving, and then two daughters Martha and Rita. And Irving, we're going to talk about Irving uh, later on because he had an interesting little little go around with things. Uh, picked up the uh, the communism mantle from his mom and uh, <laughs> and ran with that a little bit. Uh, so so married three kids. Her activism throughout her life, though, I thought I, was just phenomenal because after mm -hmm. the whole shirtwaist thing, she then moved into uh, she. I mean, I, I hate the word, but uh, it, she she started the cancel culture with the uh, the, meat, <laughs> the meat plants, right? Yes, so she the, did. The meat plants. She did, she led this massive boycott because they were charging uh, absorbent amount of uh, you know prices for meat, and so here's again here's this this feisty lady who leads uh again like i said before the the largest uh one well i think it still is the the largest strike of of women ever you know mm -hmm. so she she rallies the the twenty thousand, um and then she 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 keeps rolling one of the best things uh this one of the best little stories was uh she you know at the towards the end of her life she gets put into uh a, a care facility right yes yeah one she, of my favorite stories. <laughs> she, she gets the workers to unionize at the care facility. And got the facility to participate in the strike of the grapes and lettuce from the United Farm Workers. Yes. She convinced them. She's like, no, we're going to participate in this. I'm like, you're 90 some odd years old. And you're like, no, facility. This is what we're doing. I'm like, I love it. She never lost lost her chutzpah, which is just so amazing. Yeah, I was I was super impressed uh, because she I mean she she was in there I think I forget the year she was put in there but she she died in ninety six in nineteen eighty two, but led literally her entire life uh, in uh, just in activism and and always seeking out the betterment. Unions were kind of her thing, and um, I, I I am awed at uh, the 
picture that she get or the the model that she gives you know uh don't stop because you see that mm-hmm. a lot today you know folks get rolling and they get that energy and that motivation and then eventually it kind of wanes over time uh she she kept the, her foot on the gas all the way to the from start to finish when she got here so that was that was pretty impressive so uh she her second husband uh was abe goldman she was married to him from 1960 to 1967 um she kind of lost her her well uh, how do I put this? She, when she married Shavelson, she took on his last name mm-hmm. and there was a, so her name had become synonymous, right? Everybody knew Clara, um, but she, she takes on the last name and that kind of gave her a little bit of anonymity back and she was able to freaking reinvigorate and come back in, uh, and re-engage and attack, which, which was absolutely wonderful. So outside of these silly things, um, what, what else, who was she? What, what was she? Well, I think she was definitely um, someone committed to the collective. Um, you know, she officially joined the Communist Party, I think, in 1926, but I could have that 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 date wrong. Um, and throughout her life, this this idea of collective joining and, and collective power, uh, I think, really sparked her and, and influenced her throughout her whole life. You know, just not even taking putting aside the strike of 1909. Even afterwards, she was consistently making these uh, co-ops and these organizations that were all about the collective betterment of her community. You know, she also ran for public office. She didn't win, obviously, but, you know, it's like that to me is she's just she had no fear. Um, And it came to, you know, a physical cost. It came to a financial cost in in certain regards. She lost um, she was denied her pension from one of the organizations that she helped co-found. So that was, you know, that was hard for her to, to have to deal with. Um, and she just never gave up, you know? And I think that for me, that's one of the reasons why she is just so amazing. It's just, she never, and and she, every time she saw an injustice, she was committed to doing something about it. Yeah. And I think that has to be um, applauded, right? You, know, you mentioned Absolutely. the meat strike. She did. A, she also organized a rent strike in 1919 because the there was a housing shortage, and so all these tenants were increasing their rent. And she's like, ah, 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 no, 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 we're, you know, <laughs> we're not doing that, you right. know. Um, and so she's she was really committed to the collective. Um, and after she joined the Communist Party in 1926, she organized the United Council Working Class of Housewives, which was a group that was focused on raising money collectively, helped collect food and set up cooperative childcare. So again, that, that idea of the collective helping out each other within the community so that no one person has such a heavy bear. Um, that council actually led to the establishment of the United Council of Working Class Women, which later led boycotts and protests aimed at getting recognition for working class housewives as a valuable member of society. Because again, right in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, housewives, you know, even unfortunately, to a certain extent, to this day, right, people, women who stay at home to care for the families, aren't really valued, aren't really cherished for the work that they do. Yeah. And so she was very, very committed to to pointing out the fact that, hey, they have bargaining power. They they may be the housewife, but they make some of those grocery decisions. They decide what meat products to buy, where to buy them and what textiles to buy and where to buy them. So um, she was just super committed to to that idea that we women are 
forces to be reckoned with and that there is something to be said about that, that collective spirit. Absolutely. Uh, and the connection to the Communist Party, which I, I couldn't quite figure out. I mean, the, the so the collective nature of everything, that kind of makes sense. Um, and then the pre, you know, uh, they're leaving before like the pre-Stalin stuff kind of like before before it gets super ugly there. Right. Um, but she ends up going right. back, I think, in the 50s, it was uh, and and actually ends up getting like yeah. a visa, like denied and all this other kind of crazy stuff because she went back and mm -hmm. and made connections and it was you know we were we we're not real real kind with russia at the time so uh it it makes sense but um uh, <laughs> but that kind of it, it kind of confused me a little bit because it, it seemed to be her her connection with the the communist party uh I don't want. I mean, I, I guess it's Marxism, but and and like socialism, I I, I kind of get that and, and see that picture. But, um, were, have you been able to? And let me a million words to get to my question. You know, have you ha, have you been able to find um, <laughs> where she balanced supporting communism, but also pushing the American dream? Question mark. If that's a thing. Yeah. Um. I I haven't. I I think one of the reasons that prompted her to join the communist party was that idea it was the more marxist leninist type of the collective right it wasn't necessarily the stalin implementation of communism and i think for from her standpoint the the government right had ignored women specifically for so long and especially immigrants right and so i think guessing i'm guessing i've never been able to find kind of you know like why why would you be doing com you know why would you be supporting communism but also you know spreading um, the american the american dream or the american values or espousing american values i haven't really been able to find a quote or anything um but i think the the idea of of communism and socialism i think it was much more of that 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 drew her in and seeing the successes that she had in that collective bargaining and that collective argument really, I think, inspired her to, to continue to do that. Um, and I think in the time that she joined, right, 1926, so the Democrats weren't really, you know, a party of immigrants. The Republicans weren't really a party of immigrants. It was very much like every man, woman, and child for themselves. And so maybe the idea of this collective unit and of, of kind of coming together yeah. to raise all boats, right, or um, kind of spoke to her in a way that um, that maybe the other political parties did not. I also think that you know, the Communist Party was maybe a little bit more um, accepting of women than and, and women leaders versus like the yeah. Republicans and the, and the Democrats at the time. But yeah, she got in trouble for her communist leanings because, as you mentioned, she went over to um, after her first husband got ill, she kind of went back to the garment industry and she served on the American committee, the American committee to survey trade union conditions in Europe. And upon her return, she got called to testify um, in that McCarthy-led yeah. House Committee on Un-American <laughs> Activities. And I just, yeah. one more reason to love her, in my <laughs> opinion, because I'm like, yes, yes, of course she did. Um, all because, you know, she's just anti-war protester. She wanted, she was not about nuclear weapons. Um, so just so, so ahead of her time on so many issues. Um, so I think it's another badge of honor for her. <laughs> and, and we're going to, deep dive into uh some of her her character 
Uh, and when we talk about uh, her leading the strike and getting involved in the unions and stuff here in just a minute. And so this this picture that we have began to paint will get even uh, more vibrant and bright, which is going to be really great. And I'm super excited. But for now, I think that's going to wrap us up uh, as far as her biographical data. We're going to take a quick break. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk about some of the things that she got involved in, specifically in the shirtwaist industry and uh, and how that kind of the impact that she had throughout that entire time. So don't go anywhere, folks. We will be right back after this. Thanks for hanging out. We are back. We are going to be talking a little bit more about uh, Clara Limlick and uh, what she did as far as activism. And we're going to kind of get into the meat and potatoes of uh, women immigrant workers in the early 20th century in America. So we're going to talk a little bit about the shirtwaist strike and women's equality in the workplace. And as uh, Alicia mentioned earlier, at the time, women were working 11, 12 hours a day. Uh, six to seven days a week. Starting wages were somewhere between, you know, I, I, the lowest figure I saw three. The highest I think I saw was like nine. Um, mm-hmm. Either way, pennies for 70 plus hours, uh, that 70 hours of work for less than that. And I think inflation, actually, you in, in your article, uh, inflation, <laughs> I think you in, uh, it was like $170 a week or somewhere in that, that realm is kind of where it came to. But I am, I'm, going into business first and that's a, a big no-no for me because <laughs> we we got to do whiskey before we go anywhere so i'm jumping the gun oh my god okay so uh whiskey number two we are moving on we're staying with dalmore we are gonna grab their 18 year version now pretty much the same thing just a little bit older so we're uh we're, excuse me, not the 18, it's the 15 year. We're doing the 15 year. So this spends 12 years in a former bourbon cask before it gets thrown in for the last three years into these uh, sherry Oloroso butts and then blended all together, made super pretty, and then sent out to everybody. So I think this one, this one tends to be a little weirder as far as flavor okay. goes. It, it has, uh, it definitely like weird fruit things for me. And, and people pick up different flavors uh, out of everything so i'm not gonna tell you what other folks have said they they pick out on this but this one tends to be a little funky like it's it's just it's a little bit bizarre so we'll uh get after it all right cheers Cheers. okay that's getting a little bit more throat punchy um honey honey comes forward for me yes (laughs) i love it yeah Yep. So not not uh, still not to the point where I feel like I'm gonna uh, pass out, but I can definitely this is definitely stronger than the first one. Um, but yeah, for me the most overwhelming flavor that I'm I'm picking up on is is a honey flavor. This one tastes uh, and I I don't have a, a flavor for it, but it it definitely is a little bit dirtier. Mm. Uh, I think that might have to do with the amount of time and. Uh, I'm not criticizing the folks at Dalmore. They've been making whiskey for, uh, you know, hundreds of years, and they do a phenomenal <laughs> job at it. But I think there's uh, – it just the, – the longer it sits in some of those older barrels, it just kind of picks up some 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 rougher tones, mm-hmm. and it just kind of feels 
feels a little dirtier. So uh, I do get the honey. I get uh, some some weird like grape almost like some dark mm. dark fruit stuff like right at the beginning. Let's see. I can see that. I can see that. And almost think, like a blackberry. Yeah. 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 And I think that's some some sherry influence coming through yeah. there. But then right towards the end, it just gets gravelly. Like it's yeah, you know, it I mean, this is stuff that came from the ground to make whiskey and you're kind of tasting a little bit of the ground it came from. <laughs> so while we sip a little bit longer, I want to talk about you for just a sec. Okay. Um so <laughs> civics and coffee. Yes. You started in August of twenty twenty. I did. Right. Yeah. Um, so what, why'd you start? What got you going? So um, oddly enough, I was uh, talking with a friend of mine over a 4th of July barbecue type situation. And they, we were talking obviously about all the historic stuff that was happening in 2020 between Black Lives Matter protests and the, you know, the presidential race and a pandemic and just kind of all of these things that were historical. Um, I think we all in 2020 decided we're done living through history. Can we just move on, please? Yes. Um, please, <laughs> but in those discussions, I was, you know, uh, my friend was kind of talking and, and sharing his opinions. And I said, well, you know, there's like some historical context for this. And his response was, well, I hate history. And that was like a, an arrow to my, my heart. And we were also talking about podcasts and he mentioned a podcast who I will not, I won't name, but um, because I don't believe that it's a, a worthy podcast of people. So I don't want to disparage any, any other podcasts out there, but he mentioned a podcast that he uses to kind of get his information. And I, um, I was like, no, 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 no. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. And after thinking about that and thinking about how many adults actually that I've met who have said, I hate history. It's so boring. It's so terrible. I am, I just, I was sitting and spinning and thinking there's gotta be a way to get more people interested in history and adults are all busy. Right. And the one thing that I noticed about most history podcasts is that they're very long. And if somebody's already not into history and they go to look up something, you know, like, Oh, let me learn about the, Battle of Horseshoe Bend, and it's a two and a half hour podcast. They're gonna be like, "Yeah, no, I'm good, thanks." So I said, "Well, let's do a history and the time it takes to drink a cup of coffee." I was actually sipping on some coffee at the time, and I said, "Oh, civics and coffee, here we go!" <laughs> and that's how it was born. <laughs> uh, so uh, we're uh, you're a little over a year old uh, now, yeah. and you have sixty eight. Episodes? Um, yeah, I, I'm losing track. I just recorded like my 73rd episode. So okay. <laughs> right I think, yeah, 67, 68 published. Yeah. I, I don't math good. Uh, I history better than I math. Uh, so I was <laughs> trying to count as I went up the list there to see, but, uh, releases weekly. Yes. Every Saturday. Um, uh, except for yesterday, uh, I had a little bit of a snafu with Spotify, but luckily got it, got it all fixed. Um, but yes, every Saturday morning, uh, so that people can enjoy their history with their coffee. That's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And that was a, a challenge, I think, uh, for most of us history podcasters to to find a way to deliver because people who have a passion for history are we're nerds. Uh, yes. You know, and, and we're going to talk at length about it. We can argue a point to death. We can, you know, well, yep. if you look at this side and if you look at this scholarship, yes, totally. Yep. <laughs> and, and so the, the challenge becomes how do we deliver that? to mm -hmm. to folks how do we share our passion without putting them to sleep uh, exactly I, 
I get drunk uh, and share mine drunken and, you know, with with folks and you deliver it very intact and, and very <laughs> uh, direct, which is which is wonderful. And I, I hope that's uh, a thing that that continues. And that was one of the things with with the, the pandemic that I loved was there was just this explosion of creativity. And right. so I, I started Why Whiskey uh, prior to the, the pandemic. And at the time, I was listening to a lot of history podcasts, but they were highly produced. Um, mm -hmm. I, Wondery, American History Tellers, I'll name names. Um, yeah. uh, history, uh, was it uh, History That Doesn't Suck is another great one that uh, yes. has been super fun. But they were very few and far between. And there was a lot of these narrative, you know, where you kind of feel like you're sitting in a classroom right and just listening to a lecture and it was it, my daughter zapped me uh she came in out to the studio i was editing one time and she sat down and she it was one of my early episodes and she's listening to it and she's like dad i feel like i'm in school this this kind of sucks and i'm like no no oh no <laughs> wah, it's like, all right wah. yeah all right well we're gonna fix this and uh we're gonna go from there so yeah no uh so you're you're following the linear history Yes. Okay. So in trying to figure it out. So, I, you know, I consider myself a geek of the 20th century. I mean, I love the civil rights movement. I love the, the era of McCarthyism. I love the world wars and kind of what the, 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 I can't think the whiskey is already kicking in um, the impacts of those wars, Jesus. Um, so <laughs> I knew that if I was to left to my own devices, that I would never, ever, ever start at our founding. I would just talk about, you know, Brown v. Board and uh, Roe v. Wade and the election of John F. Kennedy, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, like those, those are my jams. So <clears throat> in order to kind of stay committed, I said, okay, I'm going to start <laughs> at the quote unquote founding, knowing full well that 1492 is not the founding, that there was native peoples in, uh, in America way before Christopher Columbus failed up, as I like to say, um, and quote unquote discovered the continent. Um, so I just wanted to start there because I, I do find that that's the beginning of quote unquote American history. Mm -hmm. And being an American history podcast. And then I also try to mix it up through taking listener requests. So I've had some really great requests over the, the last year. Like I have done a couple of series on the World's Fair. Um, somebody requested that I cover H.H. Holmes. Um, there's another one that's coming up soon that is all about um, historic black cemeteries and kind of how they've evolved. And so, yeah, it's been it's been lots of fun to to kind of balance these requests that kind of let me play around and quote unquote, you know, uh, later history while still kind of refreshing my memory about, oh, yeah, that's what happened back then. And oh, yeah, that's right. So it's been it's been a real fun time. And then, of course, obviously, getting to know all of you fabulous people like I love listening to your podcast because just this from the jump with the music I'm like I'm in New Orleans yes let's do this a <laughs> little bit a little bit of jazz a little bit of history I love it so um you do great work and it's been it's been a, a whirlwind of a year but it's been a lot of fun too so hell yeah hell yeah well I'm I'm super glad we uh we got connected and uh and we're able to to share and enjoy uh, each other's stuff. So uh, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. But uh, we gotta we gotta get back to business here just a little yes, bit. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so we're gonna talk uh, shirtwaist strike. We're gonna talk women's equality in the workplace. So like we uh, like I had started before we whiskeyed, which was a, a terrible misgiving. Please forgive me, uh, my why whiskey folks. Um, they're making no money. They're working forever, and they're working in deplorable conditions. And reading about some of the 
the conditions specifically, mm-hmm. the bathrooms that they were that they had available to them, the 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 break facilities, the lunch, the, you know, they had to eat uh, often in in very small places with very little stuff. And we're I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. We're going to kind of talk about that. Um, but uh, in a uh, uh, in an article by OAH, this says over 40 percent of women industrial workers toiled in textile mills uh, and the garment trade. Employer policies in the industry remained notorious throughout the progressive era. The practices of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory epitomized the frightening lack of conscious of many factory and building owners, end mm-hmm. quote. A uh, link to that will be in the show notes. You guys can read all that on your own. Uh, the shirt, the, the owners were horrendous, and the yes. foremen were awful. And they packed these places full, uh, often elbow to elbow, as you mentioned yourself, and I'm not doing it any justice, so I'm going to kind of hand that over to you to, to kind of expound on the details of of these factories and what these women were were working uh, in, if you if you're ready. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, the garment factories were uh, a pigsty to to say the least. Um, they were filled obviously with bodies. They were filled with highly flammable material because shirtwaists were made of of cotton, and they had these huge industrial lines where you know, these women just did kind of their piecework. So there were scraps of material everywhere. And obviously this is before any kind of fire codes, safety codes, employee safety laws. So it was cram as many bodies as you possibly can is and get as much work done as you possibly can. Excuse me. And, you know, no lighting. So they were kind of trying to, they're straining their eyes, they're straining their fingers, trying to do this very fine piecework uh, to, to make a, a shirtwaist. And again, pennies on the dollar, there was this really weird work system, subcontracting system within the garment factories where there were people called learners, most often women, mm-hmm. who would earn the least amount of money due to their work being qualified as unskilled, even once they've mastered the stitch I, I think I'm remembering correctly here, but they, they even some of them had to pay to learn, correct? Yes. They actually yes. had to pay or work for free for like two weeks. Um, or so like materials and things yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Crazy. It, yeah. Insane. And uh, so they would earn the least amount of money, usually that $3 range. <clears throat> and they often, the men would be considered the skilled workers and they would just turn around and task their work to the learners. So they were getting paid $20, $25 a week, not really doing anything, kind of subcontracting, putting all their stuff off to the quote unquote learners who would be earning, like I said, $3 a week. And the for for Clara, you know, what she noticed immediately was obviously an imbalance in the workforce. These women were doing a bulk of the work and not getting paid accordingly. Um, they were even dissuaded from joining unions, even though the men had unions, they didn't want women to be a part of them. And so she just called it out and she said, this is ridiculous. We work, we're working just as hard. We're producing just as much, if not more than the men, we need better pay. And also, you know, requesting maybe one day off so that they can rest (laughs) because like I said earlier, they, you know, they were working seven days a week, 11 hours a day. They, they just weren't, they, 
had no time. And so if they were sick, they lost money, right? And potentially could lose their jobs. That was the other thing is that there was no sick pay. There was no sick leave. There was no real um, respect or, or any kind of givings for, for the employees. And Tammany Hall, which is a kind of a political machine in New York, was also very against workers. They, they were in the pockets of the big garment factories. And so any t- attempts at trying to strike or trying to bring this, these deplorable conditions to the forefront were often met with constant derision, physical violence, physical intimidation by the police, by the political machine, by the owners who would hire strike breakers to physically assault these women trying to picket um, and, and kind of bring, bring notice to what, what they were dealing with and what they were trying to ask for. So she was, um, you know, she was a, a, a kind of a force to be reckoned with when, when she got going. And she was not one to shy away from anything. Uh, she mm-hmm. she ended up having seven, I believe, ribs broken, six yeah. maybe. Uh, either way, more than one is awful and mm-hmm. uh, and horrendous. So she she wasn't one of those ones that kind of just started the ball rolling. She she got the ball rolling, but she got it rolling from the front. She was pulling the ball along, and she took the hits that came with being out front, and that's commendable, like very uh, very impressive uh, to hear. So she comes to. Uh, the attention of the outside world in November of 1909. And this is where you get that first glimpse of like, uh, you know, you're or badassery. Sh- shut up and listen <laughs> to me. Right. So she, she's at this big meeting, right. At, uh, yep. at the Cooper union and it's going with on broken ribs with yes. And it's going on and on and on. And these, and these dudes are up there and they're just, just throwing words. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not saying anything. Uh, and all of a sudden she, comes out and says hey you know this is this is bullshit she calls it straight out she says quote i have listened to all the speakers and i have no further patience for talk end quote like throws it out there like i'm done stop talking start doing shit yep and she did and that's kind of where you know you see the uprising of the twenty thousand in in 1909 which was uh, an 11 week long strike composed of yiddish speaking women uh, who all worked in factories with uh, appalling conditions and and the stuff that we have mentioned mentioned before. So, how does it go from from Clara to twenty thousand? How do we how do we get there? So she obviously she had her her speech at the Cooper Union Hall where there were thousands of people in attendance, a lot of women, and she you know declared, "Hey, I move that we go on a general strike now." And within a couple of days, 20,000, some estimates put it at 30,000, but the most common kind of theme is 20,000 people walked off the job. Now, three main factories were the ones that they were really targeting, though through kind of the word of mouth and through kind of the press attention that they got, it really spread. It spread as far as like Philadelphia and Chicago and, you know, plenty of garment uh, industries were impacted. And so um, the three main shops that were at play were Triangle, which becomes famous just a couple of years later, everybody. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> uh, Leeserson and the Rosen Brothers. So those were the three main garment uh, shops that were being kind of targeted and saying, your conditions specifically are deplorable. But like I said, as, as the kind of the momentum grew, 
the union kind of called together. She was really a good advocate in, in gathering more people. She was really known for her ability to organize. So she was able to, to get a lot of women and men. She actually convinced a lot of men to join. And that, um, in, in her ability to kind of get the men on her side, she pretty much guaranteed a work stoppage because obviously if it was just the women, they could bring on more workers. The men were still there. So kind of a divided force, there was nothing, nothing was going to get, was going to happen. And so by kind of gaining that respect from the men, she pretty much was able to guarantee the work stoppage. And like you mentioned earlier, it lasted 11 weeks. A lot of the factories that were kind of being targeted and lost their workforce kind of folded immediately. They were, they were willing to negotiate. They were willing to give higher pay. One of the things that they wanted, obviously, was a closed shop. They wanted the ability to have union workers only. Um, and, of course, my favorite gentleman ever in the history of the world, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, who are the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist um, Factory, were pretty um, adamant that that was the one condition that they were not going to abide by. Um, and, and honestly, the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist really weren't uh, acquiescent to any of the demands. I think eventually towards the end of it, they finally said, fine, we'll, we'll give you a little bit more money. Um, but they addressed, you know, they allowed no ability to have a real union, a real union. They, they allowed the employer union, which was just BS, um, and did nothing for the safety conditions, which was, you know, a huge thing that we'll talk about when we talk about Triangle. Um, and so they did win a lot of their concessions. She was arrested, I think, 17 times um, throughout her, her career. I don't think it was necessarily during this 11-week strike. Um, but she got, like I said, she got the men to join the picket lines, and they won a lot of their concessions. So they got a 52-hour work week, which, ew, <laughs> uh, a whopping four holidays, and a little bit of an increase in, in wages. So for, for that strike specifically, it, it really kind of galvanized the idea that women were just as powerful a collective bargaining unit as men. They were willing to put themselves on the line because that was, I think, before this strike, that was the main concern with the men is that, you know, women were seen as these delicate flowers who had to be cherished and couldn't do any back-breaking back work, excuse me. And between her ribs getting broken and getting arrested. And she's still out there knocking on doors, trying to get people to get, join the picket lines. Um, and she had the women, they showed up. And this is November in New York, you guys. This is not summer or spring in California. This is snow, this is freezing temperatures. And also this is like 1909. So I'm pretty sure they didn't have a lot of, you know, Patagonia jackets. They were cold. <laughs> <laughs> November November in New York now can be absolutely miserable with with all of the creature comforts. So yeah, uh, a heavy wool coat and all that uh, if they had that was uh, would not be a, a wonderful thing. Absolutely. And so let's talk about the fire. Let's 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 go. Yeah. Um. So the Triangle uh, Shirtwaist Company uh, gives a little bit, like you said, uh, mm -hmm. but does very little as far as uh, working conditions. And the conditions here now pop up. And they they bite them in the ass. So they think a yep. uh, a cigarette was thrown on a, a pile of discarded fabric. Yeah. So Saturday at the end of the workday um, in March of 1911, a the 
they, a foreman, they believe, um, was smoking and discarded his cigarette or his ash, they don't know exactly, um, into a pile of waste scraps. And so, like I mentioned earlier, the, the shirt waste factory is filled with cotton material, which is highly, highly, highly flammable. And how the how the factories were set up is because it was all kind of a piece system and everything was kind of brought together. You had all of these shirtwaist hanging in from the ceiling. You had all this cotton material on the workboards, and then you had these huge um, bins underneath because the idea was they didn't want the workers to get up and put the scraps of material in one central location. They just wanted them to be at their desk or work table. And so they just had a really long bin underneath the work table to put all the scraps in. So basically you had flammable material everywhere. And this guy on the, I believe it was the eighth floor, um, just discarded a cigarette. It was towards the end of the day. And they, Max, uh, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, they closed off one of the exits. So providing only one exit. And they did this because they were worried that uh, the workers, the women, would steal material because one of the other things that was kind of common during this time frame is this idea of tenement uh, sewers, right? They would they would try to do little shops outside of their outside of their little apartments in the in the tenements, and so they were always worried that these women would steal the material to kind of do a side hustle. I mean, they're working seven days a week, eleven hours a day. I don't think they have any. <laughs> They're anything not, left they're the not the sewing when they go home uh, yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> pretty, pretty much pretty much guaranteed yeah so um you know and they were so strict about that that they even looked at the women's bags their coats to make sure that they weren't stealing any material so obviously this fire ignites and spreads rapidly and the problem of course again because there was no fire alarms smoke alarms any type of kind of normal employee laws that we are used to now, there was no notification to the upper floors. So the ninth and 10th floors were completely unaware of what was happening below their feet. And quickly as the fire spread, the one remaining exit that everybody had in the stairwell just, just was smoked out. They couldn't, they couldn't traverse it. And they tried to call up through this rotary kind of phone to, to tell the, the people on the higher floors and the secretary, it was the eighth floor contacted the 10th floor and said, hey, there's a fire, we gotta get people out. And she kind of immediately left her phone post to go tell people, hey, there's a fire. And I guess back in the that time frame in 1911, if you didn't hang up the phone, that the person couldn't make another call. So there was no way for the ninth floor to understand what was happening right below their feet. Mm. And so by the time they started to see smoke and started to feel the heat, it was kind of too late. And I, while um, Max Blank and Isaac Harris were there, they were able to escape going up. And so they were at the top of the Ash Building. And there was a law school, I believe, right next door. And they extended a ladder so that they could get off from the roof. But basically, the women on the ninth floor were kind of scrooged, as I like to say. And very quickly, they started to use like the rickety fire escape. But again, because there was no laws in place and there was no real mandates, that fire escape was not meant to carry a lot of weight. And so as the women were kind of piling on, trying to get out of the burning building, the fire escape collapsed and all these women plummeted to their death. 
And so then women kind of had a choice of do I burn to death or do I jump from a ninth floor building? And they, a lot of women decided that they were going to take their life into their own hands and they were going to jump. And the, there was, I think, a reporter who later wrote kind of hearing what he thought was a very thick rolled up carpet hitting the ground. And that was actually the women. Mm. And it's catastrophic in the sense that you know, from a fire response standpoint, they were, the fire department is actually pretty fast. I think they were there within 15 minutes. They had the fire out within a half an hour. Um, so it was pretty, They, in terms of a response time, it was great. However, the fire department had not yet caught up to the high rises of New York. And so their ladder only went up to, I think, the sixth or seventh floor. So way, way below where they needed to get needed to be. So they couldn't even get to these women. So it was literally just a matter of let's just try to get this out as quickly as possible, where these women unfortunately perished. And in total, it was 146 people died from that fire. Uh, Heartbreaking uh, is Mm -hmm. what that was. And and looking through, uh, because there's there's a lot of uh, pictures of that incident, Mm -hmm. uh, or the aftermath of that. And it's, uh, uh, they're, they're hard to look at. And yeah. immediately, I when I was reading the the story about this, I my mind went back to nine uh, eleven, mm-hmm. and uh, you know those folks making the same decision. Um, the, a lot of different safety elements were in place uh, on that day that were not available to these women on that day, and the negligence. Uh, and and that's one of the things I struggle with with history is you go back and you see these things and you think about the incident with today's mindset. And mm-hmm. you're just like, man, fuck these guys. Um, <laughs> all they had to do was open a door. All they had to do was, you know, and all these other, and, and it's super frustrating. And then they go to court. Mm-hmm. And then you see the bias in court, which is uh, straight up disgusting. It is just yep. absolutely disgusting. And one of the jurors came out during the, the trial and for these, these guys, and they said, quote, I think that the girls who undoubtedly have not as much intelligence as others might have in other walks of life were inclined to fly into a panic, end quote. You asshole. Yeah. What else were they going to do? They had one fire escape and mm-hmm. the floor like underneath them was literally burning underneath their feet. Like, uh, and, and the, the lack of empathy and regardless, mm-hmm. I, I know that women at that time were looked on as less than and, uh, but but the lack of empathy for humans uh, yes. absolutely rocked me. And and mm-hmm. these bastards got away with it. Yes, they, they did. They got nothing. Yep. It's uh, it's infuriating. It's an infuriating lesson of history. Um, but it, it remains one of my favorite stories in history only because of the impact, right? Yeah, it took 146 people to die, but... You know, a, a, for, a future cabinet member, Francis Perkins, was on site that day and saw the the fire and the bodies falling from the from the eighth and ninth floors, and she kind of committed at that moment. She was already, you know, very progressive and and very pro worker, but kind of in that moment, she was like, "We need to do something so that this never happens again." Again, very reminiscent of nine eleven, right? All of the right. things that we put in place to try to prevent another nine eleven. Um, 
that was Frances Perkins because she saw that and she said, what the heck is going on? Why, how did this happen? Why, why do the, there are, why are there no laws? Why is there no enforcement to protect these workers? And I think that was proved the shifting gear to really promote changes to you know, worker safety laws, building safety laws, building safety codes, right? You know, the, I, I believe the fire escape didn't even go down to the, to the ground, if I'm remembering correctly. So they would have had to jump from, you know, the third or fourth floor right. to, down to the, down to the ground. So they would have broken or greatly injured themselves uh, jumping anyways. Um, but, you know, over the next five years, you kind of see this huge change in how we, you know, how worker safety is prioritized. And um, it, there was a, a march after the, after the, their death in, I believe it was in April, and it was a rainy day and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets to kind of pay remembrance to these women, young women who died because you know two men couldn't be bothered to like you said open up an extra exit or install a, a, any kind of water fire retardant system or you know just make a few minor alterations could have potentially saved you know a majority of the lives so um it's it's a dark moment in our history but i i am heartened by the impact in terms of the the response right yeah. the blank and harris they didn't really get theirs as far as i'm concerned i believe one or both of them were arrested later um after the judge kind of said you need to do these minor updates to your factory and they said yeah sure 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 and then they didn't do it so i, I do believe they got arrested later on but not for manslaughter they didn't serve any real time nope. right and it was all about that money and it's um it's infuriating for sure. So uh, those those folks they uh, they collected the insurance off the building immediately. Yes, they did. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, <laughs> out of the kindness of their hearts, they paid the families of the victims one week's pay. Mm -hmm. Nine fucking dollars. <laughs> Nine dollars they paid. So later on, as you mentioned, uh, it was 1914 when they were ordered to pay additional damages of. $75 to each. And that's uh, with inflation. I'm sure that's uh, significantly higher, but still um, the, it, $9 uh, mm -hmm. because you, you freaking, oh, that's super frustrating. Um, and, and again, it kind of shows that whole, uh, the gross bias that existed uh, and, and the lack of I gotta be careful with my words here because I, I get like I'll get fired up and emotional. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta. Freaking, well, I think they had yeah. two strikes against them, right? They were women yeah. and they were immigrants. Yes. Which historically, sorry, people throughout the the millennia, yeah. women and immigrants are not typically looked on kindly, especially right. in United States. So yeah, and you get a, a really great picture of that as well because I mean, although the these these Jewish women were not they they were not treated well at all. Uh, you look at the Italians, the Italian immigrant women, mm -hmm. who that almost resembled slavery for Christ's sake. Those, their foremans would just beat the shit out of them. Um, equal, he is terrible, um, but very, you know, here you are, these, again, immigrant women are just getting uh, mercifully, or mercil mercilessly, that's, that's a hard word to say when you can sip whiskey, um, <laughs> <laughs> just just uh, whooped on and, and worked into the ground. And I'm, <laughs> I know it's, I know it's not all fixed, but uh, I'm, 
I'm glad to <laughs> to see the the changes over time that have occurred and that continue to occur to kind of uh, balance the scales out and make everything kind of kind of level. So interesting enough, even despite I don't know if you had a chance to read the the article that Clara wrote for the Good Housekeeping magazine in 1912, which would have been the year before year after year after the triangle shirtwaist year after. Yeah, so there still wasn't much change um, even mm. after the fire because you know she's still calling out specific names and places of, of what they're doing and and going on and on about how uh, despite the tragedy which could have totally been avoided, you know they're still fighting uh, similar conditions that aren't uh, you know again they haven't leveled the bubbles or anything they got a couple little compensatory or you know com- Jesus I got to stop using big words in second. <laughs> You know, compensation yeah there we go they got they got little they got they got you know a little nugget Fred, here and there but that's all Fred they got Crumbs. they didn't get anything yeah. they nothing uh viable or actually like really uh changing of their condition which was just gross uh absolutely gross so, well and uh, um uh, you know funnily enough when when new york finally kind of responded and it took years you know they tammany hall is this political boss machine kind of was like oh i guess we should probably look at this because if our people if immigrants keep dying we're going to not have anybody to support us so that we don't have any more political power so i mean the light bulb went on very selfishly but even with the help of tammany hall the the improvements that were made were just to the garment industry so it ignored all the other industries nothing was done about meat packing plants nothing was done with other textile factories it was literally shirtwaist factories okay there is a problem they're highly flammable let's work and do all consolidate all of our efforts and attention on this one industry and that's why it took so long and even you know even that in new york i think it took two years they had two years of hearings and committees and you know a lot of kind of back and forth before they even made minor concessions minor changes and again it was limited to just the garment industry in uh looking up i, I did a, a thing on air conditioning uh and early early <laughs> yep. you know sources of air conditioning were explosive and crazy uh, you know and again it was massive fires and uh, tragic events that caused them to go in and be like okay so we're not going to use this gas anymore because <laughs> This gas is super bad, you know, and we always seem to the trend. I don't want to say it repeats itself, but it rhymes a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, response to tragedy. We don't we don't listen to the folks who are calling out the shit right at the beginning, even though they're saying the exact same thing. We have to wait until we experience tragedy in order to alter our course and and make better decisions. And Mm -hmm. uh, and that might be a little bit of a human nature thing. um, But you would think after we have. Uh, example after example after example after example so the, the first time somebody raises their hand and say hey this is probably not a good idea we'd be like we're gonna listen to you let's explore mm-hmm. this everybody take a time out and let's fucking let's fix it but yeah that's uh which again we now have fire codes we now have uh you know I, i'm sure this was a, a step along the way to get there which was yep. which was good but you know the road to safety is paved with you know the loss of life which is yes always always tragic so all right so that's gonna wrap us up for this one we're gonna take a quick break uh we're gonna pay some bills and then we're gonna come back enjoy our final whiskey and uh talk about some of the lasting impacts that clara had on america and all of that so don't go anywhere friends we will be back in just a second hey friends it's ian i want to ask for your support 
Yes, I'm doing it. I'm that guy. So there's a couple different ways you can support the show. If you want to support the show for free, all I need you to do is hop over to iTunes or Podchaser.com and drop me a review. These reviews help kind of bolster my ability to get out there and have more people see the show and come and enjoy the whiskey and history and shenanigans that we enjoy on a bi-weekly basis. Now, if you want to go a little bit deeper and you want to hand over a dollar or two, that would be awesome. I have started a page on buymeacoffee.com. So the link is in the show notes, www.buymeacoffee.com slash whiskey. You can make a donation of however big or however little you want. That's just going to help me buy coffee to stay awake, to keep writing, researching, and pushing this show out to you guys, looking for more guests, and just being an all-around freaking, you know, general kind of fun whatever. To those who choose to donate on Buy Me A Coffee, you will be sent a private link. A private link that will take you to the video vault of Why Whiskey. Yes, we record the videos. So you get to see me and a guest or just me sometimes, putting the show together, unedited, nothing. You get to see the flubs. You get to see just exactly how much I say um. You ever notice that? It's crazy. Anyway, two ways to support. Drop me a review or go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash whiskey and make a small donation to the show. Thanks. Cheers. Right, here we are. It's segment three. We're on our last whiskey. And this one, my friend, is going to be a little punchy. Okay. It's dessert, <laughs> but it's a little punchy. So okay. <laughs> we are sipping for the final whiskey of the evening. This is uh, a glorious rye whiskey that is the uh, Angel's Envy Finnish Rye. So uh, they come out of uh, the Louisville Distilling Company. They are originally they were sourced from MGP. I think they're making their own stuff now. This is an ongoing release. Uh, it is proofed out at a hundred, so it's uh, it's fifty percent ABV. It has no age statement. However, it is suspected of being six to seven years old, and its mash bill uh, is allegedly ninety five percent rye, five percent malted barley. Now this is finished in rum casks, so. Rye whiskey, you kind of get some sweet bread notes, and then to put it into a very sugary distillate uh, barrel of, of rum really just kind of makes this uh, something that you would sip for dessert. Super okay. sweet. Uh, take your time. It is uh, a little heavier than, than the other two that we've, uh, we've been drinking. Okay. Ooh, cheers. Cheers. I don't know if I'm just drunk at this point, but um, that actually wasn't as punchy as I thought it was going to be. All right. Yeah. That's great news. I, I had to make a, a whiskey sour for a, an event that I did. And I used 1776, just obviously because it said 1776. I was like, I have no idea about anything about whiskey, bourbon, scotch. Um, and that made me fall on my derriere. So I don't know if it's just super strong, but this is actually not bad. Was it their, was it their rye, their batch proof rye? You don't know? Okay. I have no idea. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, they, because uh, I've got some of them uh, on the wall here behind me, and their their batch proof rye is delicious, but it is 
it is uh, hey how you doing it's uh yeah yeah it, it, it gets you there so these are great this is another one um finishing uh, angels envy really kind of started the whole market on this whole finishing kick which is a big thing in whiskey now uh and they they started off finishing their bourbon and sherry casks and there was a lot of folks that got kind of weird about that like a lot of the purists the bourbon purists were like oh it's not bourbon because it's you know touching something else <laughs> shut the but up. it's good it's so good it is yeah. it is absolutely delicious and, and this uh, is coming from somebody who's not a whiskey drinker so yeah you get you did good you did me kind i appreciate you <laughs> I always get so nervous. I like because I'm afraid that you know because I've had a couple of times where they take the sip and their face just like totally like goes into a circular pattern and they're just like distorts. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm glad. So uh, again, we're gonna we're gonna talk about you for just a little bit before we go on. Uh, talk to me about your your history adventure. Where where did that begin? How did you get wrapped up in in the realm of history? So I blame two teachers. <laughs> My, uh, the first one who kind of planted the seed was my eighth grade U.S. history teacher, Mr. Lamb. And this was a guy who came to school and I, I, I am not kidding, track shorts. So this is the nineties guys. So I, you know, um, this was not acceptable, uh, teacher attire. <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't also like a part-time PE teacher. He was a full-time U.S. history teacher and he would wear these really short, red track shorts <laughs> so he already has a presence right like you're already paying attention to what homie has to say and he just delivered you know before then history was very much you know oh these gods came down from heaven and they established our country and they were perfect and they never did anything wrong and blah 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 and uh mr lane was really the first one to humanize history for me you know, he, he pointed out the faults. He pointed out kind of the, you know, the discrepancies in, in the stories and, and so on and so forth. And um, he really made me want to know more about these people from history. So I blame him. And then it was um, increased exponentially by um, my high school history teacher, Mrs. Kane. And she made history, I think, tangible and real. And actually the first time I, I heard about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire was in her class. And that, like I mentioned in our last segment, is kind of my favorite history story. And she brought in, I remember distinctly, she brought in a Vietnam War veteran. He was a mechanic for airplanes and he was in country and he came to speak of his experiences. And he did not see combat. That was not his, you know, his everyday life. Um, but he was nonetheless, you know, uh, very, very impacted by his experiences. And I remember just hanging on every word that he said. And, you know, again, you, cause you, when you learn about wars in school, it's very much like it happened from this time to this time. And this time, this side won, and this was the reason there, there's not a lot of time, you know, in a school curriculum to, right. to dive into the personal aspect. Right. Yep. And I think that was the first time for me that war had a personal aspect that I hadn't really been cognizant of. I had before. Hmm. And I remember after his speech, I was like on the verge of tears and I kind of went up to him and I thanked him for his service. And I immediately went home and like dove into everything I could learn about the Vietnam War. And so it's just ever since then, I've just been kind of a dork and wanting to know kind of like 
why why are we the way that we are now? And you know, it, it's very much about our past. It's very much about the experiences that we had. And I know professional historians hate the phrase "those who um, fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it." And but I, I kind of I, I feel like that's very much the case. I mean, yeah. 1918 Spanish flu, 2020 COVID-19. I'm just saying, you know, I, like ugh, it's, there's many instances throughout history where um, we've kind of already gone through something like this before, you know? Right. Um, and we didn't really learn all the lessons. And so apparently somebody out there has said, okay, you need to learn new lessons. Here you go. <laughs> so um, yeah, I blame two, te- two teachers and uh, just fell in love with, with the subject and have been a history dork ever since. So you got your bachelor's in in history. Uh, what was I your did. focus? Uh, U.S. history, obviously, shocker. Twentieth uh, right. century labor movement. I actually wrote uh, my senior thesis on the Teamsters okay. and Jimmy Hoffa because uh, I also really love criminal history. Like I love the the rise of the Italian American mafia. I know, like I'm sure plenty of Italian Americans are like, stop. We don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> But like, I blame the U.S. government, right? Like, had they not done prohibition, uh, Al Capone and his thugs probably would have never gained a good foothold. They, you yes. know, I mean, maybe they would have found another industry to, to exploit. But it's just so fascinating that here we have this kind of criminal underworld very directly kind of given their their leeway because of government actions. And that's just so fascinating to me. So I kind of took my two loves of like 20th century history and labor and the the mafia and wrote my senior thesis on, on that. <laughs> yes. Labor and the mob. I yep. love it. That's that's incredible. Uh so where'd you go to school? Where was uh where was college for you? So I went to Sonoma State University. So it's in Northern California. Uh, great, great group of people. I'm hoping to go to graduate school there. So awesome, <laughs> yeah. awesome. Is that in the near future? I am submitting my applications this week. So yes! we'll see. <laughs> that's awesome. That is so yeah. incredible. So uh, looking at the wall behind you and everybody that's listening, uh, they can't see the wall behind you, obviously. But uh, there's a wall of medals. So obviously the track shorts for Mr. Lamb had an impression <laughs> on you uh, because you appear to run a lot for fun. Yeah, are you, are I you do. A, a recreational runner? I am. I am a crazy person who really loves to um, earn medals. I, I always, I always tell people I don't do it for the exercise. I don't do it to like feel healthy. I do it all for the bling. And you, you only are seeing like part of my medals. It goes all the way to the to the wall here. Nice. Um, yeah. So I love it. I do half marathons. I have not yet been uh, committed enough to do a full. Mm. That is a lot of pain. Um, I'm yeah. usually having to ice my knees after the 13 miles, so I can only imagine what would happen to me after 26. So yeah, yeah, I, I think I've done four or five uh, half marathons, and at the end of each one of those, I am committed to not doing a full because yeah. <laughs> the, the the misery at the end of that. I'm like, yeah, another one of those immediately following that. Now I'm I'm solid. I'm I'm good. I'm good. But yeah. uh, but that's awesome. That is that is fantastic. So uh, let's let's wrap this up in talking about some of the impacts that uh, Clara had uh, across the board. So uh, through her works, what are some of the things we've kind of touched on a little bit? Uh, mm-hmm. You know what some of them were, um, but if you could share with us what you believe to be some of her greatest lasting impacts and some of the big changes that she made to uh, the industry or society or or whatnot. 
Well, I think number one, her biggest impact is her ability to demonstrate the power of collective bargaining and collective movements and that women should be taken seriously, right? Um, you know, we've touched on that a, a couple of times where before you know, people just didn't, oh, you guys are just dainty. You're not going to do anything. You can't suffer through a strike in the middle of winter in New York. Um, and she kind of, you know, she said, um, we showed them. I think that's yeah. actually one of a quote from her that she said, well, we showed them. Hold, and, my, uh, hold my beard. <laughs> exactly. Watch exactly. Um, I think she also is kind of emblematic of personal sacrifice for the greater good. You know, we mentioned before she was beaten quite extensively. She suffered broken ribs. She was arrested quite often. Um, so that's a, that's a financial impact. And she continued to advocate and continued to really stay true to her beliefs. Um, and I know that a lot of historians point to the 1909 strike as kind of the jumping off point for a lot of collective bargaining movements throughout the country over the next five years, and a real a big explosion of union membership and, and union power um, that would, you know, go for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, so I think that's another big part of, of her impact. And also there's actually an award that is given to her, given in her honor to older women. So like women in their like 70s, 80s and 90s, it's called the Clara Lemnick Award and it's for people's social activism. And I just think that that is so perfect. That is so perfect that there is this award given, I believe it's the Labor Arts uh, Committee, I think. I could have that wrong though. Um, and every year they honor uh, older women for kind of being badasses. And it's, you know, I think that's a, a perfect emblem for her, you know, a perfect kind of tribute to her and keeps her memory alive. Cause I, I really do wish that more people knew about her and, and all of the stuff that she did. I mean, she's most known obviously for the strike in 1909, but as we've covered, you know, she was, she shut down butcher shops in New York. She did, uh, you know, meat strikes. She did rent strikes. She forced her nursing home to participate <laughs> in an agricultural strike. She helped unionize the orderlies when she was in her eighties and nineties. Um, you know, so she just, uh, she's kind of a badass and I, I wish more people would know more about her. Yeah. I was blown away. So I'm, I'm Total transparency. The name was vaguely familiar, but I knew nothing mm -hmm. uh, until you you made the suggestion. Hey, would you want to talk? And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Let's do this. Uh, and so getting the chance to to meet her and to to be introduced to what she did was was pretty incredible. And at the time, and I don't know who said this, um, and I'm gonna fuck up the quote now too because it's uh, history isn't written by women who behave themselves or, or, uh, oh yes. Uh, history is rarely, uh, wait, women who behave. Oh, I know exactly you know what, what you're trying to say. Right? Yes. Uh, women who behave rarely make history. I think is that, the quote. I, I think that's it. So I will find <laughs> it and I will link it in the show notes so we get it right. Uh, but right now it's, it's that, something that's around the whiskey it. talking, everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, but that, that just kind of sat there, um, you know, because here she is, at, at a time where women had no voice at a time. And she, not only did she, she forced them to listen to her, uh, but she rallied uh, thousands, thousands, tens of thousands uh, around her cause, both men and women, you know, uh, followed her. And, th and that kind of charisma is, 
is incredible. And those those types of characters, I'm drawn to those types of characters in history. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the charismatic leaders always draw me in, and I'm always fascinated to read them and, and to go through and to see. I like the little weird stories, and that's where I, I rabbit hole so bad. Uh, I, I'll i get that little nugget of information, and I just kind of dig it, you know, Patton was a poet. Who, who knew, hmm. right? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, me neither, until I just kind of tripped across it, and then down I go. I, I couldn't tell you, like, what battle he won in Africa, but I could tell you he was a poet and wrote some really cool shit. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but, like, those kinds of things. And this, and sorry, I tangent sometimes. Uh, but this was where you really, I mean, you, you kind of get that little nugget of, of this this person, this fiery little, uh, at the time of, of the picture. And, again, I... I I saw the picture first, and I'm so glad I did because that gave me a face to mm-hmm. the, you know, and I, and honestly, I injected my my youngest daughter Annie. I injected her voice, right? So I, when I read these quotes, I hear I hear my daughter, um, you know, but I see the face of this person, and just hearing that go and and that theme there, the consistency that she demonstrated throughout her entire life, I think, is probably one of the most impactful things that I. I, I got through all of this because it it started, you know, she she found a cause that she believed in. She did what she had to do despite her parents saying, you know, hey, no, stop it. You know, she's like, right. oh, okay, right? So she's pushing back against her folks because she found something that, you know, she she's going to espouse and she's going to go for. And that's, you know, the the rebellious nature. Of course she would come to America. That, you know, welcome. We, we love rebels. Bring them all. Yes, you know? yes. <laughs> um, you know, we, we love that. And, and she came here and she found her footing and she was able to enact uh, her, and I'm going to use the word her rebellion, but it's not. I, I understand that. But she was able to uh, kind of espouse her rebellion in a productive manner throughout, mm-hmm. not only just for this one little instance in, in the 19, you know, uh, early 19th or 20th century, you know, she, she rolled that thing all the way till she went. Mm-hmm. On to the the next adventure, right? Uh, and and the consistency really blew my mind. And that is the to me the most impactful thing as far as an example. Pick up a cause, take to and the never take to go. the street, and yeah. and don't stop until you're done, because it's yeah. it's never done. There's always work. Mm-hmm. And and she she embodies that, and that's beautiful. And I'm so glad to hear that there's an award, uh, right? Right, and it's given <laughs> and it's given to those at the end of the. You know, at the end of the adventure of life, which is which is wonderful, uh, and it really kind of celebrates that, and that that really kind of brings that through. So, let's talk about our kid for just a second, because I okay. again, this is one of those little weird stories. Uh, her son Irving, right? That was his name, I think. Wait, I'm gonna so. hold on. I'm gonna scroll back up, make sure I'm right here, because my my history folks will beat the hell out of me. <laughs> his name was Irving. Um, so he went a little bit deeper into the communism thing than his uh, his mom did, and he actually. It, it, allegedly, let me let me be okay. Just, allegedly, he uh, <laughs> he was uh, dishing some information uh, to some Russian informants. So he he bought the mm. yeah no he he bought the the hook line and sinker and uh, and then kind of he ended up well she ended up getting investigated by the FBI as well. But uh, but he went a little bit further and had some some deeper connections to to the Communist Party in a in a less than than positive way. But uh, uh, and I just I just bring that up for for balance and, and kind of a, a fun little you know uh, niche right into the into yeah. the, the family life of of these people because that's a, another thing you mentioned it earlier the the pedestals in which we put people in history right and and being able to break down those pedestals and realize that these are not you know the founding fathers and you you your series and you've done a couple different episodes on Thomas Jefferson which has been phenomenal and I'm so glad you're doing it because you put 
him into that great uh into he was just a dude he made yeah. a lot of bad choices he made a lot of bad decisions he was you know he did some great shit but he also did some really gross shit and mm-hmm. uh and i think more often than not we we well prior to this i say it's a little bit more common now you know the those folks in history get put up on these pedestals and they do no wrong and uh you know and i'm one of those guys who i had robert e lee up as a military genius for years and years and years and it wasn't until ty sedgill at west point freaking sat me down and <laughs> wrecked me hardcore um it kind of brought brought everything back into balance and i'm like oh shit and then alexis co did it with uh with her her book about washington mm-hmm. um you know brought him back into uh you know it's just a dude and yeah. uh and i think that's that's wonderful and and to, to kind of put that whole picture of just humans. And that, that's one of those things that I, I is an underlying theme throughout this. She was amazing. Right. But you know what? She had a kid that was a shithead. <laughs> just, just like everybody else has a kid yep. that's a shithead, you know? And it, it was really fit, uh, just, just fun to watch and, and fun to read. To kind well, of and I think too, like when, when they're more human, right. They're more fascinating. Like what's, who cares? Who wants to study George Washington as brilliant general who was perfect and the founder of our nation. Right. I find it much more fascinating that he had such thin skin that he actually failed quite often during the American revolution. And, and really from a matter of luck and the British just being like, we give up. Is he kind of, was he successful? Like that to me is infinitely more fascinating. And, you know, same thing with, with Clara is like, she's, she was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And as you mentioned, she had a, a kid who uh, made some poor choices, um, <laughs> but that's like, that just makes it even more fascinating, right? Yeah. Because, you know, history and historic moments are always done by ordinary people. They get yes. galvanized, they get lionized later, right? In yep. life. But in that moment, they are imperfect human beings trying to do what they think is best. And that to me is what draws me so much to the story of history is, is, kind of learning what motivated these people why did they do this where they saw this ill that was wrong and they had to correct it and that to me is just infinitely more fascinating than these perfect people who came down from god and and made the world a better place yeah yeah all hail uh you know lord washington or, or lord <laughs> or, or goddess limlick you know what i mean uh, <laughs> yes. and, and thankfully and the opening up of historical resources for mm-hmm. folks to, to you know normal folks to to gain access to and to kind of get that touch back on on the lives of these folks and uh, I, I went through very little primary source information with her I, I would love to kind of dig a little bit deeper into it and and kind of see uh, just to paint a little a little better picture because I think there's there's more there than the, the little bit I saw and I'm sure your picture is uh, is much more elaborate and has a lot more color to it than mine because I you know I, I dug in hard for a couple of weeks but that was that's been about it and it sounds like you've you done you done some hard work uh, <laughs> uh, on on this character, which is which is wonderful. So so as we wrap up, uh, we've been talking about Clara Limlick. She was an activist. A uh, she changed the scope and uh, the um, Jesus. This is, the last segment is always the hardest to edit. <clears throat> <laughs> the canvas. There we go. The canvas of uh, uh, New York City and its work environment. Although not immediately over time, some of the things that she was able to establish and get started would lead to drastic changes in workers' compensation, how they the amount of time that they worked, uh, and and a lot of the safety stuff that is now in place. She impacted all of that, and then remained an activist for the betterment of her community throughout her entire life. So, 
again, uh, we've been talking about. Let me start this over. I lost my place. All right, so we have been uh, we've been discussing uh, Clara Limlick. I have been talking with a fellow history nerd. Uh, <laughs> it's just been so wonderful. I'm so oh, glad you. you got to come and and hang out today, uh, and and we got to talk about this. So, I want to give you 30 seconds, 60 seconds. Promote yourself. Give me, oh, give me what what do you got coming? What's new? What's what's um, what can we so- expect? So Civics and Coffee is uh, still trucking along every episode, uh, episodes every Saturday morning, uh, wherever you get your podcast. You can also check me out at the website, civicsandcoffee.com. Um, nothing new in terms of in the hopper, but, um, you know, always keep a look. I'm on all the socials. I love hearing from people. So, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Civics Pod, look, look for me. Um, I'm everywhere. And, um, you know, thanks again, Ian, for having me on because this was a lot of fun. And I got to talk about... Uh, a woman who to me is kind of amazing so i always love that (laughs) absolutely the pleasure has been all mine uh i promise you that the whiskeys have been good so we tonight we started with uh dalmore 12 we went to dalmore 15 and then we wrapped up with angels envy finished rye uh, all wonderful stuff. We'll link those in the notes along with all of the uh, social media access to alicia and her show and uh and i think with that we're going to we're going to call it a day. All right. All right. Don't go anywhere. All right. So, friends, uh, we will see you back here in a couple weeks talking about some silly historic thing, drinking some wonderful whiskeys. We will see you then. Cheers. Did I finish my whiskey before you? Oh my goodness. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, or would like to join me at the Bar of Questionable Life Choices for an episode, hit me up on email at whiskeyhistory at gmail.com. Cheers. <laughs>